Hi, I'm Sharon Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. On this episode, I'm joined by Joe Kudla. Joe is the founder of athleisure brand Vuri Clothing. Launched in 2015, last year, Vuri did over $20 million in revenue and also expanded from men to women. Joe and I talked about how the brand has diversified brand advertising on different social media channels, why Facebook is not the be-all end-all for the company, and also why VC should never be in the driver's seat when it comes to a DTC brand. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Making Marketing. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. We're so excited to have you. Um, You have a great origin story for the brand. So I thought we would just start from the beginning. Um, Walk me all the way back to pre-2015 and why you decided to launch your own company. Yeah. So the story really goes back about 10 years. I was um, an athlete, grew up playing um, physical sports, football and lacrosse, and um, played lacrosse in college and just beat up my body. I was in tons of pain. And one day a friend suggests I try yoga. And this is probably, I'm 41 now, so this goes back probably 11 years now. I was right around 30. And I started um, taking yoga classes and I started feeling better. And I fell in love with the practice. And it was really a simple question that kind of set me on this journey. It's kind of funny, but it was really like, like, what does a guy wear to yoga? <laughs> and it was uh, and, and sort of looking to the ancient kind of Indian tradition doesn't really help. Well, yeah, that, I mean, for that one, yeah, it was like you know if you looked at what was offered, you kind of had the brands that were paying homage to like the original like the heritage of yoga, and then you on the other hand had the mainstream activewear brands, and those are the brands I grew up with and were super relatable as a kid who was aspiring to be the next Joe Montana. But you know as I've grown into my 30s, my priorities have changed and, you know, they just weren't as relatable. They were really more inspired by urban and street culture or team sports athletics. And as a guy who was living, you know, the pretty typical like coastal Southern California lifestyle, had a great group of friends. We were all really active and we were in and out of the water, surfing and paddleboarding and um, running on the beach. And really painting an amazing picture right now. <laughs> I just want to say. Yeah. I think it's a little bit part of it true in the DNA of the brand. I grew up in Seattle, like peering out the window, looking at rain almost every day. And I think I was always inspired by that coastal California, like golden light. But um, yeah, we just felt like nobody was making products for us. And so we wanted to build product that drew inspiration. Unlike those competitors I mentioned, um, we drew inspiration from the beach and our Mm -hmm. backyard and our group of friends and the lifestyle we were living. And we didn't feel like that was really introduced um, to the active landscape yeah. um, before. So You've grown, obviously, a lot in the last four years. Um, but I'm curious about, especially sort of as a product itself, obviously, you've gone through changes. You've also introduced women's. You've done sort of all of these different things. But when you were starting, I mean, that was an interesting time to start a DTC brand, right? Yeah. I feel like there wasn't as much of a kind of crowded market as it feels like it is today, although there certainly were a plethora of brands just starting. And a lot of them were, if not directly in your space, at least in adjacent spaces. Did you, where was, where were you mentally in terms of, okay, what's my competitive landscape? Obviously you're trying to disrupt these Mm -hmm. legacy players, but also everyone else wants to go DTC. There's sort of a changing customer. Um, What was sort of your thinking at the time? You know, if you think about distribution at the time, you know, the big brands that I'd mentioned were really competing on cost, not quality. And anytime that happens in a marketplace, there's opportunity for a quote unquote disruption. Um, 
we wanted to invest in materials and construction and fit. We wanted to make a better product. And that was really what it was all about was we were a product obsessed company. We still are today. Mm -hmm. Um, there was one brand out there, Lulu, you know, that came, came into the space and they were doing things well. They were investing in those same things that shared the same values and it was working really well. And instead of investing dollars into big global athlete endorsement, they were investing their money into product and letting the product speak for itself. We really shared that same ethos and we wanted to incorporate versatility into the men's market in a way that really we felt like was missing. You know, product that was first and foremost built to move and sweat in, but had an aesthetic and a DNA that you could wear in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it was that versatility that we're really known for. Um, it was very detail oriented, lots of cool functional details for, for that primary use which is moving and sweating mm -hmm. but um again like we strip it down from what we like to call the gym costume you know that came before it's like we're the anti-gym costume our product is like the synthetics we use look and feel like natural fibers mm -hmm. they're really wearable super easy to throw on so and you were also coming in at that athleisure kind of you know just the beginning maybe or just sort of the middle yeah. of the athleisure boom so it you're was, saying you can wear this yeah and you know we were really early to the market and you know we had to rely on a direct relationship with the customer in order to survive. So mm -hmm. when we launched, we thought we'd be more omni-channel out of the gates than um, than we were. And the wholesale market just wasn't responding to the brand. And um, so we knew that we were going to have to build it directly with the customer. I think a lot of the wholesale accounts out there were still trying to figure out how to address the women's market. And Lulu was kind of disrupting everything. Everybody was wearing Lulu coming into Nordstrom, wearing Lulu coming into REI, all these accounts that um, they were like, okay, how do we address the female activewear um, market because that was really evolving at a rapid pace. But men's was really an afterthought. Even for a lot of our competitors like Lulu, men's was kind of an afterthought stuffed away in later. the corner. And so people weren't ready for it. And we... Um, you know, we kind of did some market analysis and we looked at the number of people practicing yoga in the United States. There was over 30 million people practicing yoga. 30% of them were men and it was the fastest growing de demo. So there was this huge audience, almost eight to 10 million people, eight to 10 million guys practicing yoga without a brand. Mm -hmm. And um, if you, we, as surfers, there was only 2 million people that surfed in the United States. And I can list you 10 brands that compete for that customer. So we were thinking in, a, in our head, we're like, this is a really wide open market. There's right. not a lot of competition here. So when we jumped into the brand, we had a lot of like yoga centric marketing messaging and it was working, but we were re running into ceilings really early in the brands. What do you mean by yoga sense? You were sort of going for you. You were making it clear that this is a yoga that's product. right. This is for that. That's and right. And doing that mostly where? It, through social. Through social. Social advertising, Instagram. organic. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, and we were kind of like, gosh, we, we were getting such good feedback from the product. We thought that we would reach out to our customers. So we sent a survey to all of our customers early on and we just said, tell us what you love about the product. And we... It was just so great to have that direct relationship with the customer, right? Because we would have never known this in kind of the pre-online era. Sure. But um, they told us that they loved the product. The, the top five things they were wearing it for was like, number one was like running. Number two was like lounging around the house. Number three was like walking. the. It was like all these things. Um, and yoga was like way down the list. So we were like, here we are talking about yoga um, to an audience that loves the product. Um, and we always knew that kind of 
it would be a broader, we'd open the aperture beyond just yoga, but we thought yoga, it was really authentic to our story. It was really the reason why we launched the brand. We knew we would expand beyond it, but it happened a lot earlier because of that direct feedback from our mm-hmm. customers. It's interesting to me, just to go back for a minute, that at the beginning you were you know, open to wholesale sort yeah. of at the early beginnings, whereas I think you're seeing you know, all these brands launch now that... It's it's part of the strategy to know we will not do wholesale. Wholesale yeah. maybe comes you know later, and we could talk in a little bit about sort of DTC purity and what yeah. that even means now. But you didn't mind. You were like, if 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 they had been receptive and if this was going to be something that yeah. works out, you you were okay with it. So yeah. you didn't really launch the saying, okay, I'm here to create a direct consumer brand. Well, we knew that DTC would be a big part of it, and it still is our largest channel of distribution. Um, but we believe that the right wholesale partners, the right partners that are committed to telling our brand story, merchandising the product well, are committed to following like our pricing agreements and our promotional agreements. Um, we knew that they'd be an integral part of the of the ability to get this brand off the ground and scale it um, mm-hmm. the, as fast as we have. And um, I really believe in an omni-channel strategy. I mm-hmm. do think that there's some inherent benefits of being pure D to C, um, but. I don't know if they quite outweigh the benefits of being Omni. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. Walk me first through kind of your current, you know, marketing mix. Where, because obviously you were doing a ton of organic social, like most brands yeah. in the early years. Then I assume you got a little bit of money, yeah, um, and you started selling that product. And you're saying, okay, now marketing becomes a central part. Because I think what's interesting to me about sort of the rise of, you know, let's call them kind of digitally native companies, um, has been sort of almost the equal credence that's placed on product as marketing. Like, yeah, it's they're all great products, and everybody I hear, every founder is was product first, yeah. um, but marketing is so important, oh, and so even important. PR has become such a bigger part of yeah. that because it's just not enough not to do that. Yeah. Um, how big a part does marketing play for you? Where does where does your money go? Oh, it's huge. Marketing is a core tenant of our brand. We um, I launched the business with a, our VP of marketing, our, our, our first employee. It was a designer, <laughs> myself, and our VP of marketing. And um, but yeah, marketing is is really um, a, just a huge part of our success story. And you know, we really look at marketing through three um, distinct. Um, channels. One is just authentic connection with customers. And we do that through um, an influencer program that we have. We're not working with paid influencers. Um, We we coined the term influencers before influencers became a thing. But... um, you know, it's it's our way of connecting with people that are using the product for their intended use. They're out in their communities. They're mm. doing cool, inspiring things that fire us up, and um, we build relationships with them. And we that that partnership um, group is over um, twenty five hundred people strong around the country. How have you found them? Um, th- primarily through social. You know, we we also find them in offline channels, but it's primarily through social. Mm-hmm. Um, people reaching out, um, us identifying folks that um, you know live the Viore sort of lifestyle. Body the brand exactly. in a way. Yeah. And then what do you, I'm curious about that because you mentioned they're not sort of your traditional, hey, here's a famous blogger, let me pay him or That's her right. a couple million yeah. and, you know, engage with them for a year. Yeah. Um, this is, people already using the product. Yeah. Um, I assume you'll better test more things with them. Exactly. Like it's it's a great organic relationship. We mm-hmm. get great product feedback. Um, we offer exclusives to them. We offer um, uh 
kind of first look at new drops um, to them. And it's just a really productive relationship where, um, you know, again, they're not paid, but they're, they do get um, certain discounts off um, from time to time. How do you know it works with this influencer, with these 2,500 sort of partnership, strong partnership? Well, it's just so great because they're vocal. We have somebody, we have a team dedicated to managing this program in-house. And so there's um, a two-way communication street. And so we're constantly in communication with them. When we have surveys, we want to learn from our um, customers. Like they're the perfect test audience because they're living in it every day. They're trainers, they're yoga teachers, they're, you know, people that live this lifestyle and wear the product. They're almost just their focus group. Yeah. It's like a focus group. Yeah. And it's, it's been so great for us. So, you know, authentic connection with influencers and, you know, um, that, that's been number one. The the second one I would say is, um, just PR, traditional PR. Um, we, we've been fortunate to create great, um, to, to have a story that's resonating and um, to share that story um, via traditional PR. Um, we invested in early and that's been great. And then the third um, is just really efficient customer acquisition. You know, we were talking a little bit offline about, um, you know, the company was only founded with a very small fundraising. Um, right. Friends know, was, and family. It was friends and family, um, which still to this date, we've only raised friends and family. And um, we had to be really efficient and really smart with customer acquisition. And so that was a dis- that was a, a discipline we ingrained into the business from day one, um, never overpaying um, to acquire a customer, treating those customers with incredible care um, once we once we did attract them um, through our investment in happiness, which is our product guarantee. It's a lifetime guarantee. If at any point a customer's not happy, um, you know we back up our product. We mm-hmm. really believe in it. And so. Um, so efficient customer acquisition, and that goes that extends to how we've built our marketing department. Like we don't outsource any um, content production. Um, all of our content, our copy, our creative, it's all produced and created in house, yeah. which gives us the ability to really learn um, and respond quickly. So let, let's let's go back and talk a little bit about both PR and customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, customer acquisition costs have gone up. Um, yeah for obvious reasons. Um, but Facebook, to me, is sort of probably the most interesting kind of platform here because it's still incredibly effective Absolutely. is what I hear. I mean, it's not stopped being effective. Yeah. But so many more founders that I talk to now are saying, yes, it works, but at one point it used to be all you needed and yeah. now you start needing other things. Yeah. How much of a role, and it really is Facebook, it's the biggest one, yeah. um, and, it, and it has all of these capabilities, it brings back data. How much sort of does Facebook play a part in you acquiring that customer? Because once they get in, you have a pretty seamless and well thought out kind of plan to get them through it. Yeah. But getting new customers remains sort of the most interesting problem for digitally native brands. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, as a marketer, I don't think there's ever been a time still today um, that you have such an incredible captive audience, right? I think people between the ages of, I was just looking at this, um, I think it's between the ages of of like 25 and 45 spend on average like two and a half hours a day on social media. Um, And that's just incredible. Like to be able to get those eyeballs and to really understand, you know, who those people are and what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's challenging is you just have a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of people competing for people's attention on social. Um, and so it really comes down to great product. It's a very visible world. So if you're not invested in great product, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. It might take a little bit more to get capture their attention and get them to try you initially. But I still believe there's no no space quite like it out there. And, you know, our marketing mix is really diversified, right? It's not just Facebook anymore. That's, we were fortunate to be early in Facebook advertising yeah. back in 2015. Um, and it, and it, it has been a great channel for us. What we find so interesting is that our CPAs 
are continuing to go down as we learn uh, more about our customer, as we get better at serving different types of creative and copy for different product categories. Like one of the things that's more challenging about what we're doing is, you know, Fiori is not just selling an item. Like we're not just an item driven business. You see a lot of people, they launch on Kickstarter, they've got an idea for a product, then Mm -hmm. they take it to social and put a budget behind it. Viore is selling a lifestyle. Like we have hundreds of products across men's and women's. And so, and you did basically from day one, you had many products. You never did the, okay, we'll launch with, you know, a mattress and then maybe do a night lamp. Yeah, that's right. You know, we always were a broader collection. It was always more about this, this active lifestyle. And, um, we do use specific products to kind of champion that customer acquisition effort, because I think it's important that you really showcase your product through your advertising. But what's more important than anything is having a process and a system for producing a lot of content and, and learning and pivoting and adapting quickly. And, you know, some people do that through relationships with agencies. We've chosen to do that in-house so that mm-hmm. we can be really nimble. Um, and I think that's really helped us to um, just move quickly, navigate quickly without losing, you know, a lot of money um, learning a hard lesson. We'll be back after this quick break. With the mission of making the web a first-class platform that delivers results, Pantheon is building the world's best web ops platform, one that gives superpowers to web teams, allowing them to take control of their websites and work in an agile fashion to win in the dynamic digital world. With Pantheon, marketers and developers deliver results by iterating quickly, learning and experimenting with their websites in the same way that they do with virtually every other tool in their MarTech and development stacks. Pantheon powers over 285,000 sites and is trusted by thousands of marketing and development teams around the world. Learn why at pantheon.io slash making marketing. Now back to the episode. When did you start kind of diversifying that that marketing mix? Because obviously, yeah, you were early and I'm sure at a point it was like, well, why don't we just stick to this? But at some point, I think you made sort of this intelligent decision to say this has to be in more than one place because I think you're seeing the worst happen to brands who didn't make that decision. what made you start diversifying and then where did where did you start diversifying to? Well, you know, we were having so much success on social and we were finding that people just loved the product when they learned about it. And so we knew that eventually Facebook would evolve, right? We couldn't be just completely beholden to them, although they're still a huge part of our mix. We knew we had to diversify. And so um, we really got intentional last year with diversifying our mix. And um, we started investing more heavily in search. We'd, search would have always been a part of the business, but we really started to, you know, investing in, in Google, um, in search, shopping. Um, you know, native advertising became a lot more important to us. And that's been a channel that we've scaled really fast. Um, podcast advertising um, has done really well for us as well. Um, TV and uh, in the works. We, ha- we have not gone on TV yet. Um, that's the something TV that we're thing thinking is about. Interesting now. There's uh, huge amounts of obviously a lot of companies with who are starting to say, okay, we're we're going to go very yeah. traditional. Um, and I think they're running up against an interesting problem, which is they're used to this very data driven kind of marketing. Yeah. And TV is getting there, but not quite. They're yeah. still relatively traditional. Yeah. It's hard as a brand that, you know, I, I had mentioned one of our inherent values from a marketing standpoint was efficient customer acquisition. It's, you know, when you start thinking as a performance marketer, you start thinking about um, broader brand awareness. And we know it's really important with where the business is at today and where we're going. Um, but it's hard, right? It's so nice to have that direct feedback and know exactly how things are poor, performing and, you know, really trying to do your best to build that attribution model that works and drives your business. Um, 
but TV is important. But you know, actually, we've had a lot of success recently with direct mail, um, and so we're 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 mailing, and um, it's just great to it, it provides us an opportunity to show a broader depth of assortment. Mm. Whereas, you know, in in the digital landscape, you really want to be laser focused on kind of one idea. You don't want to overwhelm people, but in um, in direct mail, you can tell a broader brand story, like yeah. a catalog. You can really share that story um, with people that are interested in listening. You mentioned kind of obviously you started diversifying last year. You also introduced women's. Um, how have you found the competitive landscape for you changed for the brand, for Viori itself? Because it's no longer, I think, 2015 where you were relatively early. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's every day is a, a new brand is launching, many of them, again, in your space. Yeah. But also, um, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, but you're not necessarily just competing with kind of performance where you're competing with all of the other people out there, you know, selling, quote unquote, a lifestyle and everyone's yeah. got their own um, their own take on that. How has that changed how you sort of fit yourself into this wider universe? Well, we're trying to just be laser focused on doing what we do well. Right. And that's make great product and um, differentiate through a, a unique brand DNA and aesthetic. And I think that because our product looks so different than everything in the market. And I, I really stand by that. It's not just lip service. Like if you look at all the brands that came before us and a lot of the people that are entering the category now, especially in men's fitness, a lot of that product kind of looks, it's a slight variation on a kind of age old recipe that's worked for performance where when you look at Viore, it's like, our attention to detail, our trim package, the way we present ourselves with sophisticated and wearable prints in active wear, um, it just looks very different. And so whether that's, you know, on a rack at Nordstrom or REI or Equinox, um, or it's online, I think people look at it and pause and say, this, this is interesting. It, it looks a little bit different. And I think that's part of the reason why we've continued to be able to drive low CPAs is mm-hmm. it, it's not in a sea of sameness. To your point, the advertising landscape has just gotten a lot more crowded, right? So we know that we recognize that. Um, it's, it's hard for me to speak to it because we are actually experiencing CPAs dropping as we're scaling. And I think it's, it's partly because we have so much momentum offline. Mm. And this is where, you know, going back to like my belief in an omni strategy, I think it's really important, even if you launch with a D2C focus initially out of the gates, um, you know, you will, there will come a time where CPAs start going up mm-hmm. um, and you'll have to really get creative with, with how you get them to drop back down. And I think having offline momentum is a great customer acquisition vehicle, yeah. you know? Let's talk about your offline strategy because you're obviously not just online only. Um, where was kind of the beginnings of that? And what was your strategy kind of going into it? It's not like you just went out and said, okay, anyone who'll have me. That's right. Um, how do you kind of pick that those partnerships? What makes sense? And, you know, some of them... And how they all worked, really? Yeah. So wholesale has been incredible. Um, I'll just say that it represents about forty percent of our business today. And um, yeah, it was it was in the early days we wanted to be really intentional and selective with who we did business with, and it's it still is that way today. We have a national rep force, so we have an in-house um, sales team um, that manages an independent rep force throughout the country. Um, we're also in um, Japan and Canada, and. Um, our idea is to work with the best accounts within each channel because of our unique brand positioning. Viore can authentically sit, whether it's a lifestyle fashion account, mm-hmm. um, like take a Nordstrom, for example, or, um, an outdoor shop like REI or, you know, a, a um, 
an outdoor specialty door. Um, within sporting goods, we're really selective, like Paragon Sports in New York City, um, Sports Basement in the Bay Area, like really great merchants mm-hmm. in sporting goods, not the big guys that like Sports Authority and those mm-hmm. those type of accounts, but but the really um, niche ones that are doing a great job. And then. Um, Run specialty is great for us. Some select doors within surf distribution. So we've, we can authentically kind of sit in the middle of all of these channels, which gives us a tremendous amount of opportunity, but it also allows us to only deal with the best of the best within each space and, um, and be laser focused with telling this, telling the story the right way. So instead of like rolling out a national fixture program, which is kind of old school, traditional wholesale marketing, like we'll approach a a company like New York Running Company um, in Columbus Circle in Mm -hmm. the city and we'll do a shop and shop and really tell that brand story um, in a deep way. And that that recipe really works for us. What about your own stores? And then our own stores is is another channel, you know, kind of going back to... Um, our investment in happiness, um, it really extends beyond just a product guarantee to the way that we engage with community um, offline. Our, our retail stores are our direct channel to doing that. And so we almost view our stores as community hubs. Like they're very productive, great stores. But we launched our first store with the idea that it was going to be half art gallery, mm-hmm. half office, and half, well, a third, I should say a third. <laughs> you can't get three halves. But um we had an art gallery, we had a, a pop-up retail store, and we officed sure. out of it. And we would throw these events where we would have a yoga class, then we'd have an art show, we'd bring in bands and music and food, and it became the physical manifestation of these of, of our brand. Mm-hmm. And we continue to invest in that every day. Um, in Q1, we had over 60 um, events curated in our three stores. We have stores now in Encinitas, um, San Diego, um, Manhattan Beach in Los Angeles County, and then... Um, Union Street in San Francisco in the marina. The physical retail thing is interesting because I think there was a time again that where, wow, like justifying the, hey, I'm going to open my own store was this was this huge deal. Like you really had to have those numbers. You had to make sure you're making a ton of money because yeah. I think it was understood that the store would be kind of a loss maker. Yeah, it'll be really good for, you know, obviously the brand, the marketing community. Um, and people also trust things sometimes when they have a physical kind of presence yeah. beyond online. Do you feel like that's changed? Because, you know, retail prices, physical retail sort of rent is going down. There's a lot more empty storefronts, especially in sort of some major cities that we're seeing. um, New York, L.A., some San Francisco. Um, Has kind of the place of physical retail changed, especially as brands like yours and, again, digitally born brands enter this market? Because I feel like it's flipped away. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the meaning of a store has really evolved. I think... It's important that stores are profitable. You know, some people that just make the argument that it's going to, we're going to attribute online sales to our stores. Well, they and, usually say it's a marketing cost. Yeah. That it, <laughs> right? And in a way, you can make that argument, right? It is. But I think that the smart um, retailers are, are also very profitable. I think mm-hmm. it's important. Um, you don't want to bog down your ability to acquire customers online for, through unproductive stores. And, mm-hmm. you know, that really sets you up for a lot of risk in the event things of shift um, yeah. from with the with the broader economy um but yeah i mean we view our stores as a way for customers to come in they can return product so if they buy something online and they need to exchange it or they just want to return it they can drop it off at any of our stores so rolling out more stores across the country is um you know in our future but um but yeah it's just again a a great way for somebody to have a brand experience not just seeing four or five styles at a retail store or you know being online and seeing the breadth of the line but not being able to feel touch it and feel Mm -hmm. it and and the the stores provide that that direct experience and it's invaluable in a lot of ways where does like amazon really fit into you know your vision for the company 
Well, that, that is a great question. Um, right now, um, our strategy with Amazon is, is to stay off the platform. Yeah. Um, it's incredible what they've been able to accomplish. Um, but, you know, for us, we really want to provide that more tailored, hands-on, white glove experience for our customer. And we believe that, that we're better served to do that through our own website. Yeah. Sort of similar. Are there similarities there between you mentioned earlier, like we're not in, you know, Ports Authority, yeah. um, sort of being tailor-made with That's that. right. Yeah, really selective with who we choose, our wholesale partners, and really keeping the online landscape clean. So we might sell to like Paragon Sports, for example, but maybe, and this is not no dig on Paragon, but um, we may not allow them to sell online on Paragon.com. So we're very selective with even our wholesale accounts who can um is show up in the data? digital landscape. Is it about data? Is it about obviously brand purity is a big part of it. Yeah. You, you want to retain the, the brand you've built. Yeah. Um, but how much of it is also about like you know more about your customers, arguably, and you've you've got these influencers, yeah. you've got your you've got you've essentially built an entire operation that relies, and I think this is really the crux of this DTC debate, right? None of these companies are start a lot of these companies aren't even startups anymore. I mean, yeah. you know, Warby Parker is fifteen hundred employees. Is it yeah. a startup? I don't think so. Um <laughs> A lot of them, just to your point, you're not a direct-to-consumer only company. You're selling in a lot of other places. But to me, it's about sort of that DNA. And that DNA is brands that seek to retain a large part of the control, whereas the legacy brands lost control very, very quickly. 100%. 100%. And, you know, for a brand, we have over a thousand um, wholesale doors across the country now um, that carry our brand. Um, and it's it's you got to be really careful with who you you know how you pick your partners mm-hmm. and being really upfront and really clear and having um, contracts that really can spell out those terms is it's really important because if you par- pick the right partners whether you want it or not your product will end up on the marketplaces um, at discounts um, and if you partner with the wrong wholesale accounts they might be offering in season promotions competing with your own um, direct channels and it's so it's just really important that. You do it in a way um, that, you know, you're partnering with people that effectively tell your brand story and are really committed to your objectives. Yeah. And if that's a full price, really clean distribution, then then that's what it is. I think um, a lot of people sort of, you know, use the word scalability and then sort of run away from that. Right. Yeah. They say, OK, that will work as long as I'm a twenty five million dollar brand, 50 million. It's oh, after 100 million, I got to start looking more like a, everybody else. Yeah. Do you believe that argument? Do you buy it? Well, you know, I think, are you talking about, um, like, like it, you're going to end up like everybody else in terms of your distribution getting messy? Yeah, once you get messy? big enough, you know, you have to let go of more control. And yeah. I think there's, it's almost like, there seems to be a camp of people who are almost like anti the word DTC now, or the yeah. phrase DTC now, because it's like, it implies all of these other things. It implies, yeah. you know, bloated. It implies that it's only going to reach a certain ceiling and right. that there is a ceiling. Do you buy that argument or is that not just not true? Well, I think, you know, going back to your first question around... Um, you know, ending up like everybody else eventually. I think you just have to be really, it has to be an objective. You have to manage the business to it. If you let your distribution get out of control, it will get out of control. And it will, especially if you have a popular brand, it will snowball. So, you you know, it's one thing to say we're being selective with wholesale distribution. It's another thing to actually implement in the real world and say no, right? You have to be willing to say no. You have to answer the question, why? Like, why are we going to choose this partner? Does it make sense? And I think as long as you do that and that um, is inherent in the discipline of your business, then I think you can manage tight distribution from a Mm -hmm. wholesale standpoint. 
Um, the second part of your question, I think that you know you're seeing a lot of these D 2 C brands look towards wholesale now um, because they're recognizing the power of that um, speaking to that customer wherever they're showing up. So mm-hmm. if they're walking into a Nordstrom, you want to show up there. Right. You know, you don't want to be only in that one place you can find. Them. Yeah, I think you know you will run into a scalability challenge um, if you're a per- pure play D 2 C brand. But you know, I will caveat that with just saying it always comes back to the product. You know, it's not marketing is is a big part of the equation, but it's not the only part of the equation. Product has to product is king. Product will always be king. Make great world class product. Be obsessed with your product, and the customers will appreciate it, and they will come back. They'll tell their friends, and that's really how you drive scalability. Mm-hmm. Last question, because you know we sort of touched on this earlier, but. There is a lot of pressure, right? Especially for brands that have taken a ton of funding. And I know you're you're really not in them. You've actually been also very selective about that. And well, obviously more funding is great, enables you to grow and everything. That also puts a lot of pressure on yeah. a brand. That is the that is the kind of pressure that then you start saying, Well, and if an investor is telling me, No, you have to sell in X channel, even if me as a founder doesn't quite feel like I want to and you know the brand best and all that, the pressure is the pressure. Now that you take money from other people. Yeah. That's where the pressure comes from. What is your stance on that? Because I think it's not even just about customers or founders anymore. It starts being about the VCs. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, there, that that pressure is very real. And we've been focused on. Um, you know, we we did a small friends and family round. We've not um, done the big. You have insti- to listen to your family with we'll asking. <laughs> we haven't done the institutional funding, and I think, you know. What I would just say is that there's a lot of different investors out there that are willing to invest in great ideas. And I think it's nice if you can prove your concept through friends and family and be a little bit more in the driver's seat with just like who you choose to partner with, right? If if you go straight to D2C pre, or excuse me, if you go to the VC community pre-revenue, they're going to dictate terms oftentimes, unless your idea is really, really great. And I just think... Um, that's where people can get in trouble. Like mm. you don't want a VC running your business. I, I just really don't believe that. I yeah. think you want to be in control. And there's ways to find great, incredible investors that will be super helpful for your business, but also invest in you and and believe in the engine of growth that you've already defined and built. And they just want to be supportive and help you on that and on that path. And you know, Viore will eventually do something institutional. Um, it's it's kind of in our roadmap, and we're really excited about that. We believe that the right partner is out there um, for when that time comes. Great. And on a note of optimism, Joe, thank you so much <laughs> for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is, of course, Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show, Making Marketing, leave us a review and a rating, hopefully five stars. It helps new listeners find us. Or you can tweet at me with hashtag Making Marketing. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.